Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. Today is Saturday, March 20th, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This program is being pre-recorded. Right now it is early Saturday morning, and we have our friend Truthvids here with us once again to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white, this is part 31 of the series, and I believe it's for the last four or five parts. We've been on this long digression discussing the various misteachings, mistranslations, corruptions, misunderstandings in, in the epistles of Paul. So now we are finally reaching the end of that discussion. This to us is important because it, these mistranslations or misunderstandings adversely affect the interpretation of the scriptures throughout the New Testament. As we have already explained, due to the nature and purpose of Paul's writings, there are indeed many more of these than there are in all of the other New Testament scriptures. So this evening we are going to discuss a few passages from the epistle to the Hebrews, <clears throat> and from the pastoral epistles, which Paul had written to Timothy and to Titus. So welcome, Truthvids. Thank you once again for being here. Hey, Bill. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so we're on to the last one, right? Hebrews. And um, he, we already talked about it last week, but we see that the Jews, the, the Edomites, really didn't like Paul going and awakening the lost tribes and, and spreading Christianity, that they must have had a, a kind of an understanding that, you know, these were lost tribes and they, they really didn't want it to happen. But but here we also see that some of the apostles or, or even just disciples of the apostles, they weren't too keen on Paul's idea to just give up or They'd see it as abandoned, you know, old traditions, the Levitical priesthood. And when you think about it, if, if um, for Israel to be truly reunited and be one body again, you, you can't have some being Christians and some being kind of Levitical Christians. It has to just be one body, you know. And that's exactly what Paul was trying to explain to them, right? And 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 it also shows that when you have Edomites around you, they're always going to be fawns and pricks in your eyes, and they're always going to cause this blindness and do what they do best, you know, um, work up crowds, um, the protests, all that type of thing, the same thing they've done, especially over the past few centuries, and work up a frenzied crowd, to um, attack righteous people like Paul, and, and that's what we see all through through this um, epistle, right, right, Bill? We see it all through the epistle, we see it all through history, but in, in right in Acts chapter 22, Paul had, had professed the gospel of Christ when he was arrested, basically, and tried to explain it, his own experience to these people in Jerusalem, and ostensibly they're the same people that had him arrested in the temple, and they saw him as a heretic. So he said that he was going to go off with this message to far off distant places. And I believe we discussed that again later later on in my notes. But he, he wants to take this message to far off distant places to people who are not Judeans. What would they care? Why should they care? 
They shouldn't even care. But when they heard that, they actually wanted to kill him for it. What should that be a matter to them? They rejected Christ, and like Paul explained in some of his epistles, not only did they reject Christ, but they, they wanted to destroy the, the message itself. They didn't want anybody else to have it. And if we understand the words of Christ to his, enemy, to his enemies in the gospel, he, he called the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites and said that they don't enter into the kingdom of heaven, and they also want to bar those who are entering in. So we could take the words of Christ in the gospel and the actual experience of Paul as it's recorded in his epistles and in the book of Acts. And we could see a pattern here that extends that we can also see all throughout history. Look, look at today where the, the Jews, and, and it's basically Jews, who are spearheading that this acceptance of diversity homosexuality, lesbianism, all of this LGBTQ agenda, trannyism, and all of these things are absolutely um, in opposition to Christianity. They are antithetical to Christianity, and they want to force that on us. They want to force that on Christians because they're not entering into the kingdom of heaven and they're trying to prevent us from doing so to this very day. The same pattern in history. So now we shall continue our discussion, which brings us to the epistle to the Hebrews. And, and we're going to elucidate some passages tonight from Hebrews and the epistles to Timothy and Titus were going to be a little repetitive. However, these points that we're going to, to raise help prove the same points that we raised in these areas in, in the last four or five programs. So it, it's, um, it, it's simply additional evidence that supports our positions on certain words, such as monogenes and Christos and, and genea. So, while even in the King James Version, there are not many particularly errant mistranslations in Hebrews, at least which concern our purposes here, there is nevertheless much confusion over the epistle regarding whether Paul was actually the author, or when or for what purpose it was written. So I thought I would take a few minutes to explain that this evening, because it is clear to me that Paul was the author, that the epistle was left unsigned, and that Paul did not mention his own name for good reason, and that the epistle was written shortly after his arrest in the temple in 58 AD, but before he was sent as a prisoner to Rome. So this is a digression from our subject, but I thought it was important to discuss in this series. And, and that's because the epistle to the Hebrews is disparaged in a lot of ways. And, and mainstream academics claim that Paul wasn't the author, that it was some unknown author, or, or there have even been contentions over whether or not it belongs in scripture, which is absolutely mad. 
in Christian scripture. The epistle to the Hebrews is certainly not Jewish. So just a little background. The Judean Christians were already hostile to Paul. And we see that in Acts chapter 21. And Judeans in general had also despised him, which is evident in Acts chapter 22, which we just discussed. So we should read these two short passages. First from Acts chapter 21. And the day following Paul went, the day following, the day after Paul arrived in Jerusalem, where he was going for the Feast of Pentecost. Because under the law, three times a year, men are required to attend the feasts in Jerusalem. And Paul, having been born under the law, sincerely believed that he himself had to keep it because he was born under it. And the day following, Paul went in with us into James, and all the elders were present. When Luke says us there, he means himself and the other men who accompanied Paul to Jerusalem. And those men are listed in Acts chapter 20. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles, among the nations, by his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews, or Judeans properly, there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Judeans which are among the nations, and I'm changing the translation to correct it as I read, to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it, therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. Now, this represents a division among Judean Christians that there were Judean Christians, such as Paul and others, who believed that even Judean Christians should depart from the, uh, many of the laws and customs of Moses, such as circumcision, because those things are no longer needed or required under the New Testament. That they would be, as you said at the beginning of the program, that they should be one with the Christians from among the nations, the reconciled Israelites who were scattered in ancient times. And these Judean Christians that believed that they should uphold all of these prescriptions in the law of Moses, that they were divided against Paul for teaching otherwise. So they are the source of the Judaizers that Paul wrote about in epistles such as Galatians that actually wanted to take the Christians from among the nations and force them to be circumcised and to keep the many of the um, laws of Moses that, that were actually rituals that shouldn't be kept, that don't have to be kept, let's put it that way. So they wanted to force, they wanted to Judaize the so-called Gentiles. They wanted to Judaize the Christians of the nations. They're still trying to do that today. That's why circumcision is so popular in America now. It's, it's Jewish subterfuge. 
But that's not the case in Europe, where the medical societies, the medical associations in Europe didn't accept Judaization in the 20th century, but the Americans did. So all our boys are circumcised. <laughs> that's just a, a digression also. So these Judean Christians are opposed to Paul for these reasons, but the Judean Christians are happy that the people of the nations were receiving their gospel, right? As they glorified the Lord here when they heard that. So now the non-Christians of Judea are a different story. And from Acts chapter 22, where Paul attempted a defense of his gospel addressing the Judeans who attacked him in the temple, and he spoke of what Christ had instructed him, we read, and he said unto me, depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles, or nations. And they gave him audience unto this word, and then lifted up their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. So these non-Christians in Judea, when they heard that Paul was taking the gospel of Christ, which they rejected, to the nations, they wanted to kill him. So, as they cried out and cast off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the Hebrews typically um, took off their clothing when they were going to stone somebody. They took off their clothing if they thought it was going to get soiled in any action because clothing was expensive and difficult to launder. So they would take off their clothes. And we see many examples of that in the gospel. And even Paul, when they stoned the martyr Stephen, Paul had, had been standing on the side and they gave him their clothes to keep until they stoned Stephen, right? And Paul mentioned that. I think it's in the end of Acts chapter 8 or maybe the beginning of Acts chapter 9, but it's right in there somewhere. So the chief captain commanded him, meaning Paul, to be brought into the castle or the fortress and bade that he should be examined by scourging that he might know wherefore or why they cried in that way against him. So knowing that the Judeans were hostile to Paul and that James... As James attested, they had a bias against his teachings. It is fair to imagine that Paul left his name out of the epistle to the Hebrews for that reason, hoping that they would read it and understand his arguments concerning the end of the Levitical priesthood and the sacrifices and related aspects of the law. Now, historically, at least many of the Christians of Judea continued to reject Paul of Tarsus for the reasons which these scriptures from the book of Acts explain. So, understanding this, we see the purpose of the epistle to the Hebrews was an in-depth defense of Paul's evangelical teachings, addressing his positions on those aspects of the law which were done away with in Christ, and on the scope of the covenants, which he discussed by citing the promise of the new covenant found in Hebrews chapter 8. And this is very important to understanding Paul's ministry because when you go to Hebrews chapter 8, Paul attests 
that the new covenant was made with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah and not with anyone else. He's citing Jeremiah chapter 31, and he says that this new covenant is, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And we have seen throughout these last four or five presentations on Paul's epistles, we've seen his use of this term oikonomia, which is management of the house, management of a household. We've seen his use of the term oikos, which is house, in relation to the people to whom he was bringing the gospel. We've seen his use of other similar terms, like patria, which is family, which is translated as family in Paul's epistles, the family of the faith. Well, you can't be a, a family. You can't be part of a family. You can't be part of the, the patria unless you have a common patriarch. If you and I don't have a common patriarch, that, then you're not part of my family. It's that simple. So Paul's talking about of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. It's not somehow disparate believers that are becoming a family. It's a, already a family. And that's the family to whom Paul's bringing the gospel in Hebrews chapter 8. So in spite of all these things, in spite of his um, saying that he's going to these far-off nations, and the Judeans hated him for that, at least the non-Christian Judeans did, in spite of that, Paul is upholding the racial message of the scripture that it's only for the house of Israel and the house of Judah in Hebrews chapter 8. So he's upholding what he also had said after he was arrested before Herod Agrippa II, where he said that his struggle is for the hope of the 12 tribes. And again, he made a similar statement as we discussed several weeks ago from Acts chapter 28. So Paul isn't changing anything, but the Judean non-Christians, the Judean Christians are despising him because he wants them to stop teaching their children to be circumcised and, and the other rituals. So that's his defense, the epistle to the Hebrews. And the non-Judean Christians are, are the non-Christian Judeans are despising him because he, he wants to take this gospel to these people in far off nations. But that's also his defense, the epistle to the Hebrews. So the epistle to the Hebrews, in that context, the context of Acts chapters 21 and 22, is very understandable, and it helps to prove everything else we said about Paul's other epistles and the scope of his ministry and the, his purpose. I don't know if you have any, anything to say to that before we move on to the timing of the epistle. Well, well, first off, it's, it's so dramatic the way they uh, described that he has to die, right? Away from the earth, such a man fellow from the earth. Um, but yeah, I was just going to say, if 
the Edomites were practicing the Levitical, uh, you know, rituals and the circumcision, that then it's pointless, right? Because you're breaking the the most important uh, aspect of Yahweh's commandments to be a separate people, and it seems that a lot of them didn't understand that, and uh, they were far better off going uh, and living with Christians and then completely moving away from that. And uh, if they didn't, they probably would have suffered the fate of um, when Rome came and destroyed Jerusalem if they remained with those Edomites or eventually race mix with them, right? That, that would, I, I believe you've brought this up before, that ultimately they would be better off uh, following what Paul told them to do. Well, well, right, but the people, even Flavius Josephus, while he recognized a lot of men as Edomites, he said four times in, in his writings between the, the, the wars of the Judeans and the antiquities of the Judeans, four times he identified Herod the Great as an Edomite, even his parents as Edomites, and explained that he was a full-blooded Edomite. This is complicated, and, and there's something um, going on that's actually sort of psychological. The Edomites were... The Edomites had outnumbered, by the time the Romans came and made all of Judea a province and put it all under one government, the Edomites greatly outnumbered the Israelite Judeans in Judea. The Israelite Judeans became a minority, and the Romans appointed Herod, an Edomite king, to be their ruler. And the acceptance of the Edomites by John Hyrcanus and, and the Israelite Judeans of the late second century, that really put the Israelite Judeans in, between a rock and a hard place. So it put them into that situation. It's kind situation. of like today where we're overrun with all these uh, non-whites right Absolutely. in our country. Even Absolutely. if some people kind of understand it's a bad thing, they just accept it. Yes, and accepting it, they, they became, the Israelite Judeans became the minority in their own nation, the same way that we today have accepted other races as citizens, and now we are becoming minorities in our own nation. It's inevitable. It's a punishment from God for doing that. Anyway, Edomites, when they were converted, didn't have genealogies. They began to hear the law in the synagogues as a, a, a fact of their conversion. That these synagogues, even as Christ professed in the gospel, that Moses has everybody in every, in every place who hear him in the synagogues, that that's simply the way the society was run. And the Edomites were originally subjecting themselves to these laws of the Judeans back in 129 BC. So they would establish synagogues in the Edomite cities and the Edomites would hear the law. Their whole sense of identity, because they're not truly Israelites, their whole sense of identity was based on keeping the law and the rituals of Moses as they saw them. And that was the, the, the main point of contention between Christ and his adversaries. 
that they had no righteousness in them, that they did no righteous acts, and therefore they were hypocrites to keep the circumcision in the law. They were just being hypocrites. So when Paul of Tarsus comes along, they're naturally going to hate him too, because without that law and that circumcision, they have no sense of identity, because their sense of identity didn't come from their race, from who they actually were. It's an artificial sense of identity. And we have that all over America today, and probably all over England also, where you have Pakis and other East Asians and Africans um, saying, God hail the queen, or, or, or whatever rituals are associated with being English and symbols and things like that are associated with being English. And these people that are aliens are calling themselves English. It's the same thing all over again. And of course, when I was a child, the term American, it, it only applied to white people of white European stock who, who had been naturalized citizens or, or original citizens of America. Us and our posterity. So everybody else was a hyphenated American because they weren't real Americans. Now as for the timing of the epistle to the Hebrews. As Paul went to Jerusalem, we see from the list of his companions given in Acts chapter 20 that Luke, Timothy, and Aristarchus, among others, were all with him. There, there were a few others. From the book of Acts and all later epistles, it is evident that Luke remained with him, or at least as near to him as possible, for the rest of his recorded ministry. Then at Acts chapter 27, as Paul is being sent to Rome as a prisoner, and Luke evidently accompanied him, we see that Aristarchus also accompanied him, and we read in verse 2. And entering into a ship of Adramidium, we launched, meaning to sail by the coast of Asia. One Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, being with us. So Aristarchus was mentioned in Acts chapter 20 and earlier writings as being with Paul also. So with this, it becomes evident that in the temple, when Paul was arrested, while Paul was the focus of Luke's writing, some of his companions must have been arrested along with him, including this Aristarchus, who, being a Macedonian, was also, like Paul, a Roman citizen. So Aristarchus is with Paul when he goes to Jerusalem. He must have been arrested in Jerusalem with him, and now Aristarchus is being sent to Rome with him. But in the epistle to the Hebrews, in chapter 13, we read, Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom, if he comes shortly, I will see you. I will see you. Because Paul was hoping to be released. But Timothy was not sent to Rome with Paul. Or certainly Luke would have mentioned the well-known apostle, 
more known than Aristarchus, whom he first met in Antioch a few years earlier. Luke would have mentioned him as being with Paul along with Aristarchus, but he didn't. So Timothy must have been released before Paul was sent to Rome. Now, a protest may be raised where in verse 24, in Hebrews chapter 13, in the King James Version, we read, they of Italy salute you. And commentators assume that this meant that Paul was writing from Italy. But that's not true. The translators ignored the preposition, apo, apo, where they put they of Italy. It's they, apo, Italy, right? They from Italy is what it means. The preposition apo is from or away from. So the clause should have been rendered, they from Italy salute you. And it is more likely that Paul had visitors from Italy while he was imprisoned in Caesarea in Judea, and Luke had written that he was permitted to have such visitors. So later, while a prisoner in Rome, Paul never mentions Timothy in his epistle to the Ephesians, which was written from Rome. And the prayer in the closing chapter of that epistle indicates that he had not yet defended himself before Caesar. But then Paul wrote 2 Timothy, his second epistle to Timothy, asking him to come to Rome. Asking Timothy to come to him in Rome. And Timothy did come. So he is mentioned in the subsequent epistles, which were written to the Philippians, Colossians, and to Philemon. And they must have been the last three of his surviving epistles. So Timothy, Paul got to Rome without Timothy. Paul wrote to Timothy after his first trial, asking him to come to Rome. Timothy came to Rome, and then Paul, with Timothy, wrote the last three epistles to the Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And all of the evidence for that is in my commentaries on the epistles of Paul at Christagenia, and also there is additional evidence supporting this in a summary article at Christagenia titled Ordering and Chronology of the Epistles of Paul. Paul was arrested and imprisoned in Caesarea, and after Timothy was released, he wrote this epistle to the Hebrews to a friendly party in Judea, as there were some, but with the hopes that it would be shared widely with Judeans, being his defense of the gospel written from their Hebrew perspective. Then Paul went to Rome with Aristarchus, where Timothy was later reunited with him before his death. So that's the meaning and purpose of the epistle to the Hebrews, the chronology of when it was written, the, the evidence all fits together quite well once it's understood that way. And by that, we have further proof that Paul had never intended to change Christianity 
away from the focus of the Jews and onto the focus of people who were not Israelites. That was never Paul's intention. It amazes me how he was able to um, just send letters all around uh, in those days and how he was able to find uh, Timothy or whoever uh, took the letter to him. Uh, so, so Timothy must have remained in Judea where he was found, right? Absolutely. Timothy, he must have been in a place where Paul knew where he was to send him that second epistle. There's no doubt. So he must have and, been um, in Judea or so, perhaps in Antioch. I, I, I don't remember if I was able to pinpoint Timothy's location. When Paul wrote that second epistle, it would be in my commentary on Timothy if I was able to. Somehow I don't think we know. I could tell you where Timothy was not. He, he was not in these places where Paul said that he sent other apostles, such as Tychicus. So Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. So Timothy was not in Ephesus. And oh, the Roman Catholics like to say that Timothy became the bishop of Ephesus, but no, Paul wouldn't have, Paul would have, understood that Timothy was in Ephesus when he said, Antichicus, I have sent to Ephesus. But Paul does ask Timothy to bring a cloak that he left at Troas, at the Troad, with Carpus. So wherever Timothy was, Paul expected him to pass through the Troad on the way to Rome. So there's circumstantial evidence, but that doesn't mean we could prove where Timothy was. He and as for it. this Hebrew epistle, the, the Jews erased all memory of it, it seems, and Paul as well, right? Well, well right. The, the epistle to the Hebrews must have been preserved by Christians, but the Ebionite Christians of later times, and, and Justin Martyr, that there was a sect of Ebionite Christians that survived in Judea for several centuries, and they really weren't called Ebionites, or at least we don't know. And, and the word Ebionite is believed to be from a Hebrew word meaning poor. We don't know if that term to describe them was used, I think, before the third century AD, these Ebionite Christians. But even in the second century AD, we have Justin Martyr and the Ebionite Christians never made use of Paul's epistles. They mostly used only the Gospel of Matthew, if memory serves me correctly. They did not make use of Luke's Gospel or the Book of Acts, which are writings that had, um, had been associated with Paul. They rejected Paul as a false apostle and an apostate from the law. The same things we see in Acts chapter 21, where James speaks to Paul about the believers in Judea. And Justin Martyr, who was even earlier than the Ebionite Christians, he does not use anything of Paul's epistles or the Gospel of Luke or Book of Acts in his own writings. So 
these Ebionite Christians, I mean, that they seem to have stemmed from the same place as the Christianity which Justin Martyr learned, which he learned in Judea, because Justin Martyr was a Samaritan. So it seems that Justin Martyr, while he himself may not have actually been an Ebionite, he didn't quote Paul in his writings, in his surviving writings. And, and while there's nothing in Justin's surviving writings about rejecting Paul, there's nothing about Paul, period. So this Judean Christianity that rejected Paul, while it didn't survive, more than a few centuries, it, it um, certainly reflects the divisions which Paul had, had um, what, which Luke had recorded in Acts chapter 21, and which Paul had addressed the reasons for in this epistle to the Hebrews. By the time of the Islamic period, the Ebionites were gone, or, or were snuffed out, to, so to speak. I don't know if you have anything you want to comment on that. No, no, it all makes sense that there was meant to be one one body that the Europeans and if anyone tried to splinter away and revive or, or keep this Levitical law, that they would eventually just end up race mixed or destroyed, right? Absolutely. That the true Israelite Christians and the true Israelite Judeans, whom Paul had um, prayed for at the beginning of Romans chapter 9, that they would be preserved if they accepted the gospel. So that's why he prayed for them. Well, if they didn't accept the gospel, they would ultimately become race mixed with the Edomites. And being race mixed with the Edomites they would ultimately become race mixed with all the races that the Jews had mixed with ever since. So that the Jews, the Edomite Jews of modern times are probably, for the most part, less white than the Edomite Jews of the time of Christ. Because they mixed with all these Arab and other races ever since. And with Negroes and, and with Orientals and with Turks. So the apostles couldn't tell an Edomite from an Israelite in their own time. And there's proof of that in the gospel, especially in the gospel of John. I believe it's chapter three. They marveled that Christ could tell them apart, that he didn't need any, any um, testimony concerning men because he knew what was in man. They marveled that Christ could tell apart the Edomites, the goats, from the Israelites, the sheep. But they themselves couldn't do it. And, and if you read Flavius Josephus, he certainly couldn't do it. So they must have been more white or more white-looking than they are today. But even with the Arab and Canaanite nations of ancient times... For the most part, sub-Saharan Africans still had not been introduced into the population. Turks from, from China, that the original Uyghurs, if, if the Turks actually did, and, and they seem to have come from the, the 
Uyghurs, I like to call them, the Uyghurs of China. Well, that's another element of alien blood introduced into the Jewish bloodline, aside from the Canaanite. And then you have all of the sub-Saharan Negroes that were brought up into Yemen and South Arabia and, and then spread out through all of Arabia in the Islamic period. And the Jews are mixed with all of these elements. They're less white today than they were 2,000 years ago, even though they still weren't completely Adamic or white 2,000 years ago. So <laughs> today we have a much wider variety of what is a Jew. And, and those nappy-headed Jews, they all have black blood. That's how they have their nappy hair. The, the um, Phil Spector... It is an example of that, the, the Jufro, we call it. Yeah, and there's so many races that have sprung up just in like the past century, right? That like Puerto Ricans, uh, you know, I'm not familiar with all the uh, American history, but, you know, Mexicans, African-Americans, that they're all modern, really, aren't they? Well, they're modern in the sense of, Developing from the time of the Spanish colonization of the Caribbean and South America. And, and Spanish, when I say Spanish, that's also marginal because there were tens of thousands of Jews with those Spanish conquistadors. And, and the Bishop of Havana, the Christian Catholic Bishop of Havana, I remember reading a letter in a history book. I wish I had the citation for it because I don't. But I read this letter that was in, in an old history book that was written by the Roman Catholic Bishop of Havana back to the King of Spain in the middle of the 16th century. That's the 1500s, right? And he had complained that there were so many Jews in Havana that it was in danger of being lost as a Catholic city. And that was in the 16th century. And, and these Jews and, and these Spaniards and black slaves all combined themselves with Carib Indians and other indigenous squat monster tribes to create, eventually create what we know as Cubans and Puerto Ricans and, and a lot of the Central Americans and, and Mexicans. And, and they're a conglomeration. They're all a conglomeration of races. And, and you could even see among Dominicans that there is some, there's a small minority that has very Spanish features. And most of them look no different than Cubans or Puerto Ricans. And some of them have more in common with Negroes from Africa. And some of the Puerto Ricans do also. But it's only that this um, melting pot has been stewing for 500 years. But it's only the last 100 years that they've been introduced into the West. And mostly in America, it's only the last 60 years since that Immigration Act in 1966-67. Since that. So they started pouring into New York. They started to pour into New Jersey, Puerto Ricans and, and, and um, other Dominicans and, and other Caribbean 
mongrels started pouring into New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts in, from the 1970s. So where I grew up, I never knew a Puerto Rican until I was about 13, until about 1974. And then all of a sudden, they were all over the place, like overnight. It was incredible. That's a digression. This brings us to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. As I said, there weren't a whole lot of passages in Hebrews to address. While Hebrews eleven seventeen is not a mistranslation, so to speak, Hebrews chapter 8 proves that the Israelites were white. And we should save that for another time. Um, that should be a proof of its own. If we haven't already discussed it in the past, I'm sorry, I don't remember. So therefore, we should move on to a misunderstood term in Hebrews chapter 11, where we read in verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. And Paul wrote this using this term monogenes, which literally means only begotten. Paul wrote this in spite of the fact that at the time, Abraham had another and older son, his firstborn son, Ishmael, who wasn't put off, put off yet. And, and later, Abraham would have several more sons with Keturah. In fact, we don't even really know if perhaps he already had them, but I don't think he had any sons with Keturah until after Sarah had died. So he didn't have them yet, but he would have them. So although the sons with Keturah weren't born yet, he had the son Ishmael. So how could Isaac be called the only begotten son? And, and this is important. While the Greek word monogenes literally means only begotten, the literal translation of the term creates the wrong impression that Yahshua Christ is the only son of God. And that's clearly not true in light of other scriptures. So that's why it's important to understand this term monogenes that Paul also used it here in Hebrews chapter 11, where there was definitely, without a doubt, another son, Ishmael. So if it doesn't really mean only son in Hebrews chapter 11, then it probably doesn't mean only son in John 1.14 where the word appears as only begotten. And in John 1.18, and in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And John 3.18, in the name of the only begotten son. And 1 John 4.9, the love of God toward us because God sent his only begotten son in each of those scriptures, here in Hebrews 11.17, and five times in the writings of John. We see that word monogenes, but five times it refers to Christ, and here it refers to Isaac. But where it refers to Isaac, there's clearly another son. There's Ishmael. So we have to ask ourselves, did Paul forget about Ishmael 
That's not too likely. That's very unlikely. So the only other logical question is, does monogenes really mean only begotten? So if monogenes could possibly be translated in another manner, then it should be. There are other sons of God. In Luke chapter 3, in the genealogy of Christ, the apostle wrote of Adam that his son, Seth, was the son of Adam, who was the son of God. So it's Luke calling Adam the son of God. And therefore, only begotten has to mean something other than only begotten. Monogenes has to be used as an idiom for something else and doesn't really mean only born. And again in John chapter 11, now this is the same John that used that term monogenes in reference to Christ five times. In John chapter 11, the apostle described words uttered by the then current high priest, and he said, and this spoke he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation and not for that nation alone or only, but that he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. So with the apostle John himself saying that God had other children besides Christ, Christ really can't be the only son of God. So monogenes must be understood in another way, as Isaac was clearly not Abraham's only son, and as Christ is clearly not the only son of Yahweh God. In fact, Paul called Christ the second Adam in one of his epistles. So Paul himself said in Hebrews chapter 2, speaking of Christ, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him, that should actually be, he took upon himself, because the, the verb is in the medium voice, and that's what it means. He took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it be it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So he has brethren. And if you have brethren, then you can't be the only son. Again, Paul wrote in Romans, speaking of God, I believe this is from Romans chapter 8. For whom he did foreknow, he also did pre predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Adam, the Adamic race, is made in the image of God, and so is Christ, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Those brethren, in both instances, are the children of God spread abroad, which were mentioned by John. So reading this passage from Hebrews again, we will include verse 18 so that we have a slightly wider context. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that received the promises offered up his only begotten son, 
which doesn't necessarily mean only begotten, because Ishmael was there, of whom it was said, that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Those words were spoken in reference to Isaac in Genesis chapter 21, verse 12, where Isaac was distinguished from Abraham's other son, Ishmael. And we read, And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman, in all that Sarah had said to, unto thee, hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. So Abraham was grieving over the loss of Isaac because Sarah wanted Abraham to put away, over the loss of Ishmael, I mean, because Sarah wanted Abraham to put away Hagar and Ishmael so that her son Isaac would be safe, so that there would be no competition between Isaac and Ishmael, because Sarah was the true wife, and Hagar was only a concubine, a slave woman. So Abraham actually grieved over the loss of Ishmael. Ishmael was his oldest boy. He probably came to love Ishmael, and now he had to send him off. Therefore, the use of the term monogenes here in Hebrews, which is a Greek word that literally does mean only begotten, but where there are clearly other sons informs us that the term must represent a Hebrew idiom, and therefore it should not necessarily be literally translated as only begotten. The translators of the Septuagint who translated the Greek from Hebrew at an even earlier time, must have also understood this idiom. So, where in the Masoretic text we have a similar Hebrew term, when they rendered it in Greek in the Septuagint at Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, it reads, Thy son the beloved one. Now, I want to pull the King James Version of Genesis 22 up. And it says, And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest. But in the Septuagint, when they translated that into Greek, and in this case, Breton's English translation of the Greek is fair. And he said, take thy son, the beloved one, whom thou hast loved, Isaac. So there's no mention of only. There's no mention of only because the Hebrew men, the Israelite men who translated that Septuagint into Greek in the third century BC, they understood that that only son terminology simply meant a best loved son. That's why there's no word for only in the Greek of Genesis 22.2. So the translators of the Septuagint understood the idiom. But where the Masoretic text has a similar Hebrew term, the King James Version translated it literally. Most other versions do also, but it shouldn't be translated literally because it's a Hebrew idiom. 
and monogenes, even though it means only born or only begotten, it's simply a literal translation of the Hebrew term that should have been recognized as an idiom. It should not have been translated literally. And the Septuagint translators recognize that in Genesis 22.2. The historian Flavius Josephus also used this Hebrew idiom in the same manner in his Antiquities in Books 1 and 20. The translator of Josephus, William Whiston, makes note of the idiom at those points in his translation and shows that the term was used metaphorically for best beloved or most loved as we translate this passage of Hebrews and as the Septuagint translators clearly understood when they translated Genesis 22.2. So, for those reasons, in the Christogenian New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 reads, By faith, Abraham, being tried, had offered up Isaac, and the best beloved, or most loved, being offered, took upon him, took upon himself the promises. And this is also the same way that we interpret the word monogenes, as it appears in reference to Christ in John chapters 1 and 3, and in John, 1 John, in the epistle, 1 John chapter 4. So in that manner, this term where it appears does not conflict with other scriptures which identify the children of Israel as children or sons and daughters of God. Rather, Christ is more accurately considered to be the firstborn among many brethren and therefore the most beloved of the many sons and daughters of Yahweh who are descended from Isaac and Israel. This is a very important concept because understanding this unplugs a lot of the false claims about scripture which are upheld by the Judeo-Christians, by the denominational sects. Like if you believe in Christ, you become a son, but, but rather um, Christ was descended from Judah and it, he is part of the Israelites technically, right? Amongst his brethren, all of us, the Europeans. Absolutely. And that's how it should be looked at. And that's how the term should be understood, because that's really what it means. But they twist every single word they can. And in this case, they really didn't have to twist the Greek word. Because monogenes does mean literally only begotten. But it shouldn't be interpreted that way. And Hebrews 11.17 helps to prove, along with the Septuagint version of Genesis 22.2, that it should not be interpreted that way that it can't be interpreted literally. And Ishmael helps stand in the way of that. So he's useful for something, <laughs> in my opinion. So, so that does, that's an important passage to understand, to help understand that word. And therefore we could see that John had no conflict speaking about sons and daughters and children of God who were already scattered abroad while he used that term monogenes to describe Christ. So therefore, John could not have thought that monogenes meant only begotten. John must have understood the idiom 
even if he still used the term, because otherwise he's in conflict with himself, and we can't um, interpret John in a manner that forces him to conflict with himself. So he must have understood the idiom that monogenes wasn't to be interpreted literally. This brings us to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 and 26, just a little further on in the same passage. And this is in reference to that term, Christos, or anointed, or Christ. From the King James Version, by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. And here once again we see that the word Christos was, as always in the King James Version, translated as Christ. But it was not Christ himself who was being reproached in the captivity of Egypt. Rather, it was the children of Israel who had been a who had been reproached, the anointed people of Yahweh serving as slaves to the Egyptians. So this is a rather clear instance where it may be perceived that Paul did indeed use the term ho Christos collectively of the children of Israel as the anointed people. Now, other such examples which we have mentioned in respect of this are found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, where Paul asked, have the anointed been divided? Or in 1 Corinthians 4, 15, where he referred to tutors among the anointed. And later on, later on this evening, in 1 Timothy 5, 11, where he discussed lewd women who behaved wantonly towards the anointed. So we will mention that again later. Moses is having had respect unto the recompense of the reward. It is arguable as to whether he had any cognizance of the way in which the promises made by Yahweh to the children of Israel on account of the patriarchs would be fulfilled. It is even arguable as to whether Moses was fully cognizant of the promises at all as he was taken away from his Israelite family at a very young age, as a young infant, evidently as soon as he was weaned, where he was exposed in the river to die and taken in by a princess of Egypt to be raised as her own. And I should say, because she had him nursed, I should have said evidently sooner than he was weaned because he wasn't even weaned yet. So, he was exposed in the river to die, and he was taken in by this princess of Egypt and raised as a own. That means that he was raised as a prince in the house of Pharaoh. So, Paul may have been referring to the natural concern for the people of his own race 
which Moses had exhibited in scripture. For example, in Exodus chapters 2 and 4. In Exodus chapter 2, Moses killed an Egyptian on behalf of an Israelite whom the Egyptian was beating. And in Exodus chapter 4, we read, And Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law. This is long after Moses had fled Egypt, 40 years after Moses fled Egypt. And he said to him, Let me go, I pray thee, and return unto my brethren which are in Egypt, and see whether they be yet alive. Speaking of the Israelites in Egypt, because the Egyptians, and Moses was one of them, the Egyptians were forcing them to expose all their firstborn sons, so that a generation would come in which only females were left of the Israelites. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. So even though Moses was raised as an Egyptian, he knew that he was a Hebrew and favored his own people, although they were slaves. So on that account, we read the same passage to say, by faith, Moses, becoming full grown, refused to be called a son of the daughter of Pharaoh, rather preferring to be mistreated with the people of Yahweh than to have the temporary rewards of error, having esteemed the reproach of the anointed greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, since he had regard for the reward. And surely it was not Yahshua Christ suffering reproach as a slave in Egypt, but rather the anointed people, the children of Israel, in whose reproach Moses chose to share as it is they who were being mistreated, while Moses instead had the choice of an easier life as an official in the house of Pharaoh. So these two scriptures and the way that the same words are translated in all of the popular Bible versions, actually help to obscure the facts that first, there are literal sons and daughters of God, the children of Israel, while not everyone is a son or daughter of God, and that second, those sons and daughters are an anointed race of people, a genetic family and not some disparate collection of mere believers. The Hebrew prophets did not prophesy a gathering of some disparate collection of believers, but rather they prophesied the regathering of the chosen people of Israel in Christ. And that's the gathering that Paul was teaching. I don't know if you have anything to respond. Well, um, with Moses, it shows you that it's all about what, what you do in, in life, right? And good deeds for, for your brotherly love. Uh, that's what Yahweh is mostly looking for, right? In, in to, to really care for your people and not, even though there wasn't necessarily a law back then, because it was before Mount Sinai, it's not what these uh, Edomite Jews at the time thought that, oh, all you need to do is just obey the law, right? Well, well right, Absolutely. It, it's not. Moses didn't. There was no law back then. <laughs> there was no law. The law wasn't given at Sinai at the point where Moses showed greater care, even though Moses was an officer in the household of Pharaoh. 
he had greater care for his people than he had for his position and his luxury in life. Because an officer in the house of Pharaoh would have lived a very, and, and a prince, because even though he was an, an adopted boy, he was raised as a prince in the house of Pharaoh. So he would have had quite the life of luxury. And that's a huge sacrifice for an individual to make because he loves his people more. And I sincerely believe, and I discussed this at length over the past few years, it might have been in one of my commentaries on the book of Acts, I believe it was, that Moses was chosen for the task which he was chosen for because he exhibited that care for his own people above the luxuries and comfort of his own life. And that's the, the Christian ideal. That's what we should all care for, is our race more than our personal comfort and luxury. Do you think also um, maybe a bit of a digression when uh, Christ walked onto, I can't remember, onto the mount and uh, Peter, James and John were with him and he started shining. The, the two people that appeared was Moses and Elijah and, and uh, it was because of those two aspects that 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 uh, Moses was the um, example of brotherly love, and Elijah was pointing out the evil Jews. And you know, uh, Christ could have brought back anybody, but those two particular people. When you look at what they did in their life, well, well, right, absolutely, and that's why, even though it's really not, um, it's really not explained in Second Kings. In the course of Elijah's ministry, we see in a prophecy in Malachi chapter 4 that the spirit of Elijah is the spirit of returning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. And that's the Elijah ministry, which is basically what Moses was doing. He, he had actually um, first killed an Egyptian soldier for beating one of his own people, a Hebrew, even though he was an officer in the Pharaoh's house in Egypt. And that Egyptian soldier would have been under his command. He could have simply told that Egyptian soldier to desist and, and, and to go somewhere else. He was a, he was a prince. But instead, he, his anger, in his anger, he killed that Egyptian making an example to his own brethren that they should love their own people. And they were fighting against one another. And when he killed the Egyptian, they started to accuse Moses and, and wanted to be left alone by him. They didn't care about Moses, but Moses cared about them. Moses cared about them because he understood that they were his fellow Hebrews, but they didn't care about him. It's the same thing today. If you scold one of your white brethren for things that they have to do under these Jewish rulers that we have today, that then that they'll defend the Jews <laughs> instead of agreeing with you. They'll hate you and defend these Jews. It, it's no different than the experience of Moses. But if you want to be like Moses... You love your race and, and you make sacrifices for your own people in spite of 
where you are in the world and, and the luxuries that you have in the world. And the Jews are doing the exact same thing as the Egyptians trying to, um, well, exterminate us, right? By Absolutely. Uh, stopping us breeding. It's kind of similar to killing our sons. Absolutely. But there's evidence, historical evidence, that that Pharaoh that was doing that to the ancient Israelites was part Hittite. That he was close, more closely related to the Jews of today than to the ancient Israel, ancient ancient Egyptians, because the 18th dynasty pharaohs were making marriages and alliances with the empire of the Hittites and taking Hittite princesses for their wives. I believe Clifton Emmerheiser discussed that evidence in his early Watchmen's teaching letters. I don't have it on hand. In my head. So... Now we shall depart from Hebrews. That's all we have to discuss from Hebrews. But it upholds many of the other things that we've said here in, in this discussion of mistranslations and misunderstandings. And it also upholds the very purpose and mission of Paul's ministry. So, now we shall depart from Hebrews and discuss a few passages from Paul's first epistle to Timothy starting with 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. And this is a particular word Paul used here and in Titus 1, 4 that we're going to discuss. So we're, because of the material we're discussing this evening, we're going to discuss it twice, but I will try to keep it fresh. <clears throat> in Paul's salutation to Timothy in the first epistle of that name, we find in the King James Version, Unto Timothy, my, and that word's in italics, that's important, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Yet the word my does not appear in any Greek manuscript, and the fact is admitted where it is printed in italics in the King James Version. The King James translation renders another word which is genesios, simply as own, O-W-N, as in of oneself. Something that's my own is of me, right? But the word does not mean own, ever. The word genesios is an adjective formed from the noun genos, and genos is primarily a race, stock, or family. So how could the translators ignore the primary meaning of such a significant word, and why would they do so? The Greek word genesios, according to Liddell and Scott, means of or belonging to the race. For example, i.e., lawfully begotten, legitimate, opposed to nathus. The word nathus appears in Paul's writing in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8, where it is opposed to huios, or son, and it is translated as bastard, even in the King James Version, which is as it should be. Nathus is nothing but a bastard. The same word nathus also appears several times in the Septuagint in the same context, describing 
someone who is not of the pure race. It appears in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 2, where we read, A bastard shall not enter into the congregation of Yahweh. So Paul is telling Timothy that he is an authentic or purely bred son of the faith, as the faith is only meant for the children of Israel and not for bastards. Since authentic is ambiguous, and Paul is using an adjective which describes racial character to describe the state of a son, purely bred is more precise and it is a more accurate translation of the adjective. As Paul wrote in Hebrews chapter 12 from the King James Version, but if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. But chastisement is not merely a suffering of evil. Rather, it is a punishment for correction, as the children of Israel were prophesied to be punished. Those prophecies are in Jeremiah, and they're in Hosea, and they're in Amos, so the word genesios in this verse should be translated as purely bred here. Therefore, we read in the Christianian New Testament at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, to Timotheus, the Greek form of Timothy, purely bred child in faith, favor, mercy, peace from Father Yahweh and Christ Yahshua, our Prince or Lord. Purely bred child in faith. You know, the faith demands, as the apostles themselves said in Acts chapter 15, for example, that Christians don't commit fornication. And fornication, as Jude states, is the pursuit of different flesh. And Paul used the same word fornication to describe a race-mixing event between Israelites and Moabites from the Book of Numbers. So, if Christians are not to commit fornication, which is race-mixing, then every pure Israelite child, every pure white child, is a child in the faith. And every unpure bastard child is outside of the faith a bastard and is not in the faith because that child is not born according to the law prohibiting Christians to commit fornication. It's that simple. You're in the faith if you're white. You're not in the faith if you're mixed. That's not hard. That's the law. That's Christianity. And that's what Paul is really teaching, that Timothy is a purely bred child in the faith. And we have to understand why he would want to say that. The King James Version, ignoring the true meaning of the word genesios, once again obscures the clear racial message of the gospel, that it is only meant for a particular race of people. Furthermore, Paul had professed that the purpose of his ministry was for the 12 tribes of Israel in Acts chapters 26 and 28. <clears throat> and tribal identification in Scripture 
is always carried down through the Father. But Luke explained in Acts chapter 16 that Timothy's father was a Greek. While we learn from, from Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 1 that Timothy's mother was a Judean. As we have often illustrated here, the Israelite Judeans were indeed of the same race as the Greeks, as Paul also attested in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that their fathers were with Moses in the Exodus. For that reason, he also told them not to commit fornication, which is race mixing, of which he then gave that example from the book of Numbers and the race-mixing incident with the daughters of Moab at Baal-peor. So even even though Timothy was half Greek and half Israelite, he was a purebred son of God. The same would have been, I'm sorry, the same would not have been true if he were half non-white or if he were an Edomite Judean. That would not be true. I don't know if you have anything you might want to add to that. Yeah, this is another, just like that one, is it in Galatians that there's no Judean or or Jew, as they say, no Jew or Greek, uh, you know, slave or man, and and they try it, like this one, they try and say it's all about faith, when, when really he's talking about race, right? Absolutely. Paul is absolutely talking about race here, where he uses that adjective genesios, which is purely bred or, or <clears throat> of or belonging to the race, as Liddell and Scott define its primary meaning. When an adjective like that modifies a word like son, which it does here, it must be talking about race. So if I went and had three wives and one was Chinese and one was um, of North Northern European descent like I am and one was Chinese and one was black and I had sons with all of them, would Paul be able to say that to every one of those sons? No, he wouldn't be. <laughs> He'd only be able to say those to the, to the woman, the babies that I had with the white woman. Those other sons would not be Genesio's sons. They would be Nathus' sons because they would be bastards. And that's the way the Greeks saw the world. If you read Diodorus Siculus and Strabo and, and Herodotus and all, the, all of the other classical or Hellenistic Greek literature, that's the way they saw the world. Strabo marveled that at Alexandria, There were different races of people living in the same city because that was unique. That that didn't happen with the Greeks. Strabo made it a point to explain that there were different races of people, Edomites and and Judeans and, and other races living together mixed up in Judea, practicing the same laws and customs. Strabo marveled at that because that wasn't what Greeks did. In the Greek cities, if you were an Ionian 
or an Athenian, which is a branch of the Ionians, you lived in a city with only Ionians. And if you were a Dorian, you lived in a city with only Dorians, and you ex were expected to have a Dorian wife. If you didn't have a Dorian wife, your children were considered bastards. And even Romans had a law of connubium, which prevented men from marrying outside of their race. Only certain people that weren't Romans were granted connubium with Romans. And it was under very strict circumstances. But other non-white races would never be granted connubium with Romans. It would be unlawful for a Roman man to marry an African woman. It's against Roman law. Race mixing was against Roman law. And, and the Greeks would, would reject race mixing. Herodotus considered Cyrus, the king of Persia, a bastard because his father was Persian and his mother was a Mede. Even though both Medes and Persians are white, Cyrus was still a mule. And Herodotus called him a mule. Actually, Herodotus recorded the words of an oracle of Apollo that called him a mule. Yeah, there was a prophecy, wait till the mule, wasn't there? And then people didn't know what, what the prophecy meant. Right. When a mule came to, um, that, that Croesus, the king of Lydia, would lose his empire to a mule. And people didn't know what that meant until Cyrus had come and conquered the Lydian empire. And it's evident that Cyrus is the mule. But but this verse also shows that the Greeks and Judeans must have been the same race if if Timothy was a pure, pure bread, right? Absolutely. Or Paul could have never called him that. And I'm sure Paul would not have called him that. I'm sure Paul wouldn't have even had him as an apostle. Because he would have been a hypocrite to have a non-white or a non-Israelite as an apostle. How could he say that his ministry is for the purpose of the hope of the 12 tribes and select apostles who were not of the 12 tribes? So this, this phrase, Genesios Huios, is purely bred son. He's a pure son of the race, which is the meaning of the word Genesius. Now we should discuss that word Christos once again, at least briefly, as it appears in 1 Timothy chapter 5, in verse 11. We will read it in a wider context so that we can determine the precise meaning of Paul's words. <clears throat> so in that passage, we read in the King James Version, Let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years old, under 60, right? having been the wife of one man, well reported of for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet. That doesn't mean saints that the church appoints. That's the feet of her, her fellow white Christians. So if she has washed the saints' feet, that doesn't necessarily mean that she has to get down and wash people's feet, right? 
that's basically an, an idiom for saying if she has served her brethren, right? If she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work, but the younger widows refuse, and I really believe Paul used that term widows there, sort of tongue-in-cheek, but the younger widows refuse, for when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry. Who are they going to marry? Christ. Having damnation, because they have cast off their first faith. And here Paul is informing Timothy that the Christian community should enlist and support widows who have been faithful wives and had raised families and who have helped others throughout their lives. Upright women deserve our support. Upright women deserve to be treated as women, right? Women who live their lives as whores or runarounds deserve no such Christian support in their old age. These women who are taken in by the community would be expected to serve the community in some capacity in return for that support. So we read verses 11 and 12 from the Christogenian New Testament. But younger widows you must excuse, for when they behave wantonly towards the anointed, they desire to marry with judgment because they have set aside that former assurance. For younger women who are widows, either actual widows or who are merely claiming to be widows, because a woman could be a runaround all her life, and back in those days, it was easy to go to a separate, different community where nobody knew you, as long as you were, were a Greek woman, and blend in with the crowd. So, and, and suddenly claim to be converted to Christianity so that you could have a meal ticket because you don't have a husband that week or that month, right? There are women who, who today are basically bar whores that do the same thing. They, they shack up with the guy for a few weeks or a few months. And when they get bored, they move on to some other clown who'll take them in. Well, what if they run out of clowns? What if they're older and, and their bodies aren't attractive any longer? So they're going to go hook up with some Christian church to get the same free ride. So there were actual widows and there were women who were merely claiming to be widows back then. So Paul is instructing Timothy that such younger women should not be accepted in that capacity. Rather, they must support themselves or actually remarry. And that is because since they are still capable of being sexually active and even of having children, rather than dedicating themselves to the assembly, they may very likely break their commitment to the assembly later on through infidelity. So surely Paul is not implying that young unattached women could behave wantonly towards Yahshua Christ, but rather that they may tend to seduce men of the community, the anointed, which in this case are the men of the children of Israel, turn to Christianity. Paul is not implying 
that these women are not necessarily implying that these women are lascivious, but only that they would yield to their natural desires, which would cause them to behave wantonly and to desert the community which was supporting them, while possibly even bringing men of the community into sin. So therefore, rather than taking younger widows, whether they be real widows or not, into the care of the community, Paul wrote in verse 14, I will, therefore, meaning I desire, therefore, that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Because when a Christian community has young bar whores in the group, that gives occasion to the enemies of Christ to speak reproachfully against that community. The entire context demonstrates that in this instance, the word Christos refers to the body of Christians and not to Christ himself. And uh, it's very easily, um, even if it were, isn't intentionally, that a woman could destroy an assembly, right? If she was with one guy and then she moved to another guy and then another guy that those guys would start arguing very easily, right? It could easily happen, and it's best to just avoid the possibility of any of this happening. Right. It's probably happened a million times. It's probably already happened a million times, but it's behavior that we should avoid. That loose... Yeah, and it's far better that they just get married and, and that they would, as you said, um, you know, uh, look after the household and, and the men could go to the church. Well, well, right. And and a woman that's a fornicator, if you have a young woman in, in your community, and the same is true of men, right? Paul told the Corinthians to expel a fornicator from among them. But if you have a loose young woman in your community, and she's running around seducing men, and then she ends up pregnant, and none of the men of the community want her, or, or would claim the child, then what do you do? Do you support her? No, you don't support her. That's sinful behavior. It cannot be rewarded. That woman has to be rejected by the community. Let her go find support somewhere else. You can't have loose young women running around and, and getting knocked up, so to speak, just like you can't have men doing that, engaging in that same behavior. So there must, it can't be rewarded. There must be a punishment for it. And the only punishment, the only viable punishment is to reject that person from the community. And perhaps that young woman has a father. Well, guess what? He's stuck with her because he's, he's her father. He's stuck with her and he's stuck supporting her. But that doesn't mean she remains in the community, which is why it's important that fathers govern their children. One father with sons and daughters that does not discipline and teach his children and does not control his children can also ruin an entire community. And nowadays we see a lot of um, grandparents who've had to take their uh, kids back and they have black kids with them, right? Yeah, right. We see grandparents with little monkeys on, on, on one shoulder or one hip all the time. White grandparents with 
neglets or chimplets or whatever you want to call them. It's incredible. But instinctually, people knew this, that they, they white folk for thousands of years knew this instinctually. These laws were written on our hearts. And today it's, it's been forced out of most Christ, so-called Christian churches that this thinking, that this plain moral um, structure of Christianity has been forced out of most churches today. Now we're going to return to a brief discussion of that adjective, genesios, as it also appears in Paul's epistle to Titus. In Titus chapter 1, verse 4, in the King James Version, we read, To Titus, mine, and that word mine is in italics again. They're doing the same thing they did in Timothy. Mine own son after the common faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And once again, in this context, only a phrase such as purely bread can capture the full meaning and intention of the writer, as the adjective genesios modifies the noun for son. It does not mean own. And another Greek word, idios, appears throughout the New Testament in contexts where it refers to things which are one's own. Idios is the word for that, not genesios. They are actually creating a lie here, as they did in Timothy. Rendering it as own here in 1 Timothy, the King James translators ignored the true meaning and created lies. In other contexts, the word genesios may be legitimacy or sincerity, where in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, the adjective modifies a noun meaning love, and it might be genuine or true. At Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, where it modifies a noun for yoke fellow, the adverb form of the same word, genesios, is genuinely in Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, where the King James Version has naturally, as it describes the degree of concern or care which Paul had for his readers. So there are um, metaphorical uses of the word genesios. However, describing a son or child, it must be used in its primary sense of pure or purely bred children or sons. So as Paul had explained in Galatians chapter 2, Titus was a Greek, and as we have already mentioned, Timothy was an Israelite on his mother's side, but had a Greek father. He especially may have been considered a bastard by both the, the, the Judeans and by the Greeks. Titus may have been held suspect by the Judeans, since Greek was a general term denoting the language and culture of a collection of diverse Adamic tribes, both Israelite and Jepethite. 
And the Greeks as a people had lost the genealogies which the ancient Israelites had maintained. But Paul, throughout his ministry, correctly taught that many of the Greeks actually descended from the ancient Israelites of Scripture. Paul, knowing as much, was surely assuring both Titus and Timothy of their legitimacy as Israelites and therefore of their respective shares in the covenants which were made exclusively with Israel. So Titus chapter 1 verse 4 must be read likewise, just like we read 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 2, to Titus, a purely bred child, according to common belief, according to common belief. The word pistis does not always refer to the Christian faith. It's just a simple everyday Greek word for belief. And Paul would not have called Christianity a common faith because the word common actually means trodden or, or used by anyone, not sacred. To Paul, Christianity was a holy faith, not a common faith. Well, anyway, to Titus, a purely bred child according to common belief, favor and peace from Father Yahweh, even Yahshua Christ, our Savior. And here Paul's basically making an example. Here the word koinus is common and pistis is belief, both of which are perfectly literal meanings. And these are perfectly literal renderings of the Greek, which are quite harmonious with the purpose of Scripture. Here these words do not refer to the Christian faith or belief in Jesus. Rather, Paul was telling Titus, as he himself had taught, that he also descended from the ancient Israelites in fulfillment of the prophecies concerning the 12 tribes, which is the common belief that Paul was spreading with the gospel and which all white European Christians should have. Here we have offered many examples from the epistles of Paul of blatant mistranslations and also of poor translations based on misunderstandings or purposeful ignorance of Paul's own stated objectives. So misunderstanding is a kind word because there really is no excuse for ignoring Paul's stated objectives since they are the same objectives which Yahweh God had frequently announced for the children of Israel throughout the books of the prophets. Examining the words of the prophets, the fact that the promises of a Savior, a Redeemer, a Deliverer, and a Messiah are made exclusively to one particular race of people is without question. Then examining the actual Greek meanings of the epistles of Paul and translating them properly, we see that same message throughout his writing, that he was also speaking of only one race, which is in Christ, and not of any other races. So that basically concludes 
our presentation on, on these epistles of Paul and the, the misunderstandings and mistranslations, which they suffer. There were many other proofs of the fact that the Israelites were white in Paul's epistles, but these are the the, the ones that I selected are, are the major mistranslations and misunderstandings related to the, that issue that obscure the fact that it is true that Christianity is only for one race of people. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's all uh, consistent all the way through that he went to Europe because he wanted to find the Israelites, right? And I believe you already brought it up. They actually passed through other nations and just ignored them, right? Like Arabia, uh, Syria, he went right through it and then straight into uh, Anatolia, Greece, Greece and Rome. Well, well, right. And there were some Israelites in Syria and especially in Antioch. But that's that was the starting point for his voyages or journeys further north and further west. And he always went north and west. He never went east. Peter went east. And Peter really was in Babylon. But Peter was the apostle to the circumcision. And many of the Israelites in Syria and in and around Babylon, who were descended from the ancient Judah of the Babylonian captivity, or who were remnants or descended from Israelites of the Assyrian captivity, many of them did stay in the faith that later became known as Judaism. So they identified as Judeans, and the people in the environs of Babylon would have been seen by Romans as being Arabians because they happened to be situated in Arabia and what was known as Kola Syria, hollow Syria. So there were remnants of, of Judah and Israel in those places, but they were mostly of the circumcision, meaning that even in the Babylonian captivity, and even though they weren't Judeans in the sense of the, the um, Judeans of Jerusalem, they were still descended from Judah or from Israelites who, who were um, remained in, cap in captivity in Syria, and they still kept the circumcision and the law. So Paul just skipped over those places. And Peter and the others were apostles to the quote-unquote circumcision. But as we said, the, the apostles to the circumcision never really bore any fruit because the prophecy said that Israel and Judah would be one stick and they would basically, for that reason, all share the same faith and customs of the faith. So that really happened in Europe, where and, and in Anatolia, before the fall of Anatolia to the Turks. That's where Israel and Judah were reunited, and that was the purpose of Paul's ministry, and he was conscious of that throughout the history of the book of Acts and throughout all of his epistles. He knew who and where the scattered Israelites were. And they are the people to whom he brought his gospel. He never brought it to anyone else. 
Yep. And then um, next week we'll be on to the few epistles, right, of the apostles. Yes, next we should discuss some mistranslations and misunderstandings in Peter and James and perhaps even Jude. Brilliant. I don't know if that's going to take more than one installment. Somehow, I doubt it. But it might be a long one. If we do it in one, it might be a long one. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we'll just see how it goes, right? Absolutely. This is real Christianity is is a racial religion and and it's a it, it's the fulfillment of promises which Yahweh God made to an ancient family and that family was white and all of the descendants of that family today all of the Genesios the authentic sons and daughters that are of or belonging to the race are white and if they're not then they're bastards and not sons as Paul says in Hebrews chapter 12. Thank you for being here and praise Yahweh. Yep, praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European people. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. Good night.